to 20. Colossians 1, verses 17 to 20. Um, because of some of the discussions we have had, um, I have kind of had my radar raised, I guess, to uh, the issues that we've been talking a lot about in Colossians 1 and where they are in other places in the Bible. Um, I'm going to tell you, if, if you want to look at it this afternoon, we don't really have time to get into it this morning, uh, but Ephesians 3, verses 9 and 10. In Ephesians 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul lays out the fact that all things were created by Jesus Christ. Now, again, as we dealt with this when we were talking about the Christology of Colossians, um, that kind of goes in one ear and out the other for us. But Jesus Christ was born in the year of our Lord, as we say, zero, right? But he also is the one who created all things, right? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because his two natures are that united, that things that have been performed by uh, God the Son in time past can be attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 3.9 deals with that, and Ephesians 3.10 deals with principalities and powers. You have the same terms used there, and they are not only the same in English, they are the same in Greek two of the four that are used in Colossians 1. And there was some debate and discussion whether those terms referred to heavenly beings. <clears throat> and Paul uh, explicitly says uh, in Ephesians 3.10 that those principalities and powers are located in the heavenly places. Um, well, also, that will be our sermon text this morning. So it'll come up again. Uh, in Colossians, we continue to talk about these different things because it was so uh, integral to... Uh, the heresy that uh, Paul was dealing with. <clears throat> I meant to bring, and I think I forgot. Uh, yeah, I um, there's an early church history book by a guy named Henry Chadwick. Uh, highly recommended. He writes um, very uh, summarized history books, like 200 pages or less, where he'll give you the whole early church history, the whole medieval church history. He's got a book on that too, I think. Uh, very good, not, not really academic at all, um, but he goes through uh, a little section there, and I want to read it to you, hopefully I'll remember to bring it next week, but he goes through a little section there on the fact that uh, when the early Christians were going out to take the gospel to these places, like very often um, <clears throat> they would receive the gospel, but something... Uh, they would have a hard time letting go of their previous practices. And you call that syncretism, where they try to synchronize two things. Right? They try to blend together Christianity and the previous erroneous ways that they had. Right? So the, obviously the people in Colossae were uh, inundated with some kind of um, ob obsession <clears throat> with angelic beings and that probably informed a lot of what they believed before the gospel came to them right? and that was what Paul was encountering and why he is so at pains to show uh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ but I'll try to get that to you uh, get that in here next week and maybe I can uh, even have the time to, to type it up and you can have a copy of it yourself if you don't want to buy the book 
you can buy a used copy on Amazon for like five bucks. I mean, they're, they're good books. So, All right, so let's go through Colossians 1, verses 17 to 20. It says, And he is before all things, and we're talking about Jesus Christ, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Amen. Um, as we've said so far, uh, Paul is um, bestowing upon, heaping praise upon the Lord Jesus with these titles and accolades. And remember, they do refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, two natures in one person. You, you'll read older writers, and I'm sure some of the newer ones as well, at least guys like G.K. Beale struggle with it as well. Um, the tension in the text, as I was pointing out when I was referencing Ephesians 3, and as we talked about a couple weeks ago, how these things that were performed by God the Son before the incarnation of Jesus Christ are said to have been done by Jesus Christ. Right? And again, what that shows you is the unity of the two natures that he has in his one person. And in verse uh, 19, uh, we see that it is in Christ that this fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or uh, most translations uh, render it that it pleased the Father that in him should this fullness dwell. Um, most translations, we'll get to this in a moment, but most translations um, will insert the word the Father for you, but... As we go through a quote from Calvin, we'll see that that is not actually in uh, the Greek text, but it is supplied uh, as something that is obvious for the context. So it is a fullness that Jesus is indwelt by, a, a fullness of worthiness. Right? He is full of uh, being worthy of these things that Paul says. He is before all things. Remember, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, my divine nature was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And he is the one by whom all things consist. That is, they have their creation and continuing existence in him. That word consists, right? It's, it's, it's a bit abstract, like you try to think of a a definition of it. It's a little bit hard to, to think about how Paul's using it here, but it seems to me that he's, he's saying that Christ made all things. He's the means by which God, the Father, made all things, and they have their continuing existence in him, right? Not just that they were created, but that they are sustained by him. That is what it means that all things consist by him that all things are upheld by the word of his power, right? Remember the word from John 1, that Jesus is the one by whom all things are 
upheld. This praiseworthy one, our Lord Jesus Christ, in all his glory is not such that he is uh, totally separate from the church. No, he is the head of the church. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, unless you be confused about what Paul means there. The body is the church. And this, I believe, will lead us into our first quote there, because Calvin has... uh, One of the places Calvin particularly shines, in my opinion, is in Christology. Um, He has some interesting way of phrasing things sometimes, but uh, here I think we can draw a lot of profit. So let's look at uh, that first quote there, and this is from Calvin's comments on the head. Christ as the head. It says, under the term head... Some consider many things to be included. And unquestionably, he, Paul, makes use afterwards, as we shall find, of the same metaphor in this sense. That as in the human body it serves as a root from which vital energy is diffused through all the members, so the life of the church flows out from Christ, etc., And he's referencing Colossians 2.19. We'll read that in just a second. Here, however, so in Colossians 1.18, Calvin argues that Paul speaks chiefly of government and what he means is the government of the church. He shows, therefore, that it it is Christ that alone has authority to govern the church, that it is he to whom alone believers ought to have an eye and on whom alone the unity of the body depends. I believe he's drawing a little bit too much of a firm distinction between what's going on in Colossians 2.19 and Colossians 1.18, because look at Colossians 2.19. This is where Paul uh, is kind of laying out some of their errors, and he says, and... Verse 19, chapter 2 of Colossians, not holding the head, meaning, go back to verse 18, it says, let no man beguile you, etc., etc., etc. So meaning, let no man lead you into the error that you would not hold on to the head, which is Christ, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. So go back and look at the first part of that Calvin quote where he says um, that Paul's making use in Colossians 2.19 of this type of metaphor, that as in the human body, meaning the humanity of Christ, it serves as a root from which vital energy is diffused through all the members. So the life of the church flows out from Christ. Now that is a bit abstract, but what he's saying is the humanity of Christ, because he was sanctified as a human, because he lived perfectly as a human, as a man, we who share in flesh and blood with him receive life from his humanity. The fullness of that, that uh, life that comes just as he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, just as in the head, 
Because by the head, all the body, by joints and bands, has nourishment, right? So through the head, we think of all things coming. Of course, there's a way in which the organ, the heart, is um, a, another center of the person. But think about it, as it were, uh, directionally, right? That all things come through the head. Right? We see, we hear, we eat, um, our brain functions and all that stuff. That it provides life and strength and vigor to the body. So Christ, in that imagery that he's drawing out here in Colossians 2.19, and I would argue also, at least by implication in Colossians 2.18, to say that Christ is the head of the body of the church is not exclusively in a governmental sense, though it does refer to that. I wish he would say, under the term head, some consider many things, and I think we should consider all of them. Um, but he tries to focus on one, which is fine. But Calvin is making this distinction, but it is the same Greek word in verse 18 of Colossians 1 for the head and the same Greek word in Colossians 2, 19 for head. All right. uh, kind of an abstract principle and concept, but we... Res- Which part? Please don't make me say all of it again because I don't even know what I said. Oh, uh, so chapter 1, verse 18, the head is the same word for head in 2.19. So Paul is using the same term. And the reason that's important is because they would have heard this letter read to them in Greek. So it would have been the same word, right? When the scriptures are read to them, they hear the same word in verse 18 that they hear in verse chapter 2, verse 19. So I don't think we need to draw such a sharp distinction as Calvin does between it, but I think... The first and the second thing that he mentions are implied. Because uh, this kind of puts a, uh, a caveat on <clears throat> where Paul was talking, where Christ was talking to Peter, and, mm-hmm. and you know about who's the head of the head of the church, you know, on this rock, you know, and, yep. and how the how the Catholic Church mm-hmm. will, you know, thinks that that's not that that's not Christ. That's a, that's that's Peter is the head of the church. You know, Pete, you know, and it's the Pope. Yeah, he. This kind of says it. Yeah, oh, it does. Um, He he goes into that. I just left it out, uh, so we don't so we don't (laughs) spend forty minutes talking about Roman Catholics. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, he does go into that and talks about how some of the Roman Catholic writers would try to explain the distinction that needs to be made when we say Christ is the head, but Peter's also the head. Um, Yeah. But let's uh, not to, I'm not ignoring you, but I do want to move on. Um, unless you have a further question on that. Yeah, okay. Um, but I, I would say it gets even better uh, for what Calvin says here when he begins to speak of Christ as the beginning. And remember when we talked about uh, beginning, I wrote the words on, uh, on your handout for you, and you've got the word RK. All right, so RK there, that's the Greek word. It's the same one that's used, the same one that's used here in verse 18 of chapter 1 is used in, um, oh boy, it just went totally out of my brain. I'll remember it in a minute. Um, <clears throat> but Christ is the RK and the firstborn from the dead. Let's look at Calvin's quote, and we can get a lot of meat here. He says, as RK is sometimes made use of among the Greeks to denote the end, 
not end temporally, but end as the goal, right? The uh, point, as it were, the target. Um, so the Greeks, of which these people would have been numbered in some sense, they used it to denote that, to which all things bear a relation. We might understand it as meaning that Christ is, in this sense, arcade, the end. I prefer, however, to explain Paul's words thus, that he is the beginning because he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, notice he's going to do a little shift here because when we say beginning, we think creation. But Paul, Calvin is arguing that Paul is doing something because it's related specifically to the church that God is talking about the new creation that has been brought in through Christ. Right? So he says, for in the resurrection, there is a restoration of all things. And in this manner, the commencement of the second and new creation. So we're talking about Christ's resurrection and then our, the last day resurrection. For the former had fallen to pieces in the ruin of the first man, Adam. As then Christ, in rising again, had made a commencement of the kingdom of God. He brought the kingdom of God. He is on good grounds here called the beginning. For then do we truly begin to have a being in the sight of God when we are renewed so as to be new creatures. He is called the first begotten from the dead, not merely because he was the first that rose again, but because he has also restored life to others, as he is elsewhere called the first fruits of those that rise again. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. So notice what he's saying there, that when Paul argues that Christ is the beginning in that he is the firstborn from the dead, he is the beginning of the church. Right? Christ is the arche of the church because he's the firstborn from the dead, and the church is made up of those who have been born from the dead. That is what it means to be a Christian. You have been born again. Because the first time you were born, you were born dead in sins and trespasses. But the second time you were born, you were made alive to God through Jesus Christ. And when he says for then, meaning at Christ's resurrection, do we truly begin to have a being in the sight of God. He's not talking about Christ being in the sight of God. He's talking about us. That in Christ, through his resurrection, we are brought in the sight of God. We have a life because life has begun again in Christ. And we have a life in the sight of God through him because we're made new creatures. This is, I mean, it's just super rich stuff. That he's called the first begotten from the dead. Remember, only begotten son, right? First begotten, same kind of word here. Not merely because he was the first that rose again, but because he has also restored life to others. We, we don't, maybe you do, but I don't tend to think of dead or the dead as a place. But that is exactly what Paul has in mind here. Right? It's not just a state of being, it is that. But when he says that Jesus is the first begotten from the dead, it is from the place of the dead. That Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God, uh, God of God before all worlds, light of light, and all that stuff, but that he is the first begotten from the dead because he descended to the dead and rose again. 
No one else had done that in the way that he did it. Even though people had been resurrected, they were not begotten from the dead in the way that Christ was because he served as the firstfruits. And that's Old Testament language talking about how the firstfruits were to be brought to God, the first bit. And just as Christ, or just as the offerings were laid out by first fruits and all that. So is Christ the first fruits, the first one, as it were, presented to God, so that we can be presented and have a being in the sight of God as well when we are renewed. Now, at the end of verse 18, where he begins to say that in all things he might have the preeminence. Um, if, if you know one Greek term, maybe it's logos. If you know two, maybe you know this one. Henna. Right? The henna clause. Right, a lot of people make a big deal about the henna clause. Um, but in your, your English Bibles, it'll be uh, the, the, the words so that, in order that. right? And it's like a summary statement right, where you have... Uh, all this stuff that's been stated, and then you're told the reason that that's been stated. Right? So what Paul says here at the, verse, at the end of verse 18, so that in all things, right? So everything that's been stated about Christ before this, we could go at least back to verse 15, arguably before, has been stated to show that Christ has the preeminence, which was so important for them to grasp because of the errors that we were battling with that we've gotten into a little bit. So I would say the last phrase of verse 18 is very obviously connected with verse 19, right? So Christ, uh, so this, all this was said about him, and he accomplished all this, so that in all things he might have the preeminence, and because he has the preeminence, it pleased the Father that in, all him, in him should all fullness dwell. Or you could say that because he has this preeminence, or he has this preeminence because it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. The highest praise that Paul has placed upon Christ was all to the purpose of him having the preeminence in everything. There is not a realm of glory that his person and work fail to touch. God says his preeminence extends to all things. And there it is that our mouths and minds are stopped, for we believe and know this to be true. Um, let's begin to work through this longer quote from uh, Calvin there. <clears throat> this is where he's, he's going to talk about uh, the phrase, um, it, or the verse, verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Uh, again, if you have a a New King James, a King James, or a New American Standard in front of you, it is, uh, I believe that in all three of those, the words the Father are in italics. All right? They're supplied. Calvin's going to talk about why they're supplied, even though he wrote before any of those translations uh, existed. Um, but I think from what I looked, I looked at the ESV, um, I think that was the only other one I looked at, but they all seem to either supply the word, the, the words, the Father, or at least hint at. 
the pleasure that is spoken of here, it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all the fullness dwell. Right? So all these things that were said about Christ are not just these disconnected realities that are true about him because he was our Savior, but all these things were so that Christ might have the preeminence, and all these things were the pleasure of the Father. Right? It pleased the Father for all these things to be said of Christ, to be done in Christ, and all that. So let's begin to work through this uh, longer quote. If y'all need a handout, I've got four more over there. Um, And what page is this quote on that I'm about to start? 14? Okay, yeah, so page 14. It begins, a learned man, and he's talking about how it pleased the Father that in Christ all fullness should dwell. Calvin says, a learned man reads it, for all fullness pleased to dwell in him. He doesn't say who that learned man is. Uh, Others he liked or approved that all fullness should dwell in him, bringing instances for that construction of the word it pleased. Then he's going to give his explanation. For it pleased the Father. It is true the word Father is not in the Greek text, nor in the Oriental versions. That would be the early versions of the New Testament in other languages besides Greek. But is well understood and supplied from the context, he links it back in verse 12, where the apostle gives thanks to the Father and then describes his dear Son in the following verses. And here, in this verse 19, adds a cogent reason why Christ should be the head of his church. Since the son of his love, move over past the parentheses, is he alone in whom he likes to dwell with all fullness, or all fullness doth will to abide. I love the way he says that. It's kind of clunky because it's not written in English by Calvin, but He just says that the Father liked to dwell in Christ. And he is his beloved Son. He says that in him should all fullness, so he's just quoting the text there. Here is another all, and a fullness added to that all. An all for parts, a fullness for degrees, a transcendency in all, indeed above all. It is of the Father's good pleasure that Christ, not here considered simply as the Son of God, meaning not exclusively, but respectively as also head of his church and mediator, should be the subject of this all-fullness, which is not directly that of his body mystical. And he goes on to explain that because he recognizes that's complicated. But one, so here's further explanation. Originally, the fullness of the Godhead, whereby he hath an all-sufficiency of perfections, for his mediatory office upon the mystical union, which none other hath or can have, of which more distinctly is spoken in the next chapter. So he's answering what he means when he says, which is not directly that of his body mystical, because it's something that is tied to the fullness of the Godhead, not related to the church. And then two, this can be said of Christ that this... No, I explained that wrong, I'm sorry. So he's explaining what all fullness means. 
that Christ has all fullness originally, right? because he's a member of the Godhead. And then point two, he has all fullness derivatively, meaning a fullness of the Spirit and habitual grace. He quotes some scripture. Uh, holiness, wisdom, power, perfectly to finish his work, and other excellencies for the reconciling and actual influencing of his body. So he's explaining that. So he's, he's showing how Christ has all the fullness, and you could say that it relates to his two natures. That one, he has all the fullness because he is God the Son. He's a member of the Godhead. But two, he has all the fullness, which is... It's one of the more complicated and also uncomfortable ways to speak of Christ, to speak of his holy human nature, that Christ really received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And Christ really grew in habitual grace. He grew in holiness, wisdom, power, perfectly to finish his work, etc., etc. Then he explains the term dwell. He says, in this all fullness doth not only lodge in him for a time. Now, this is a response. He doesn't go into it, but this is a response to some early heresies as well, that Christ was simply borrowed by the Father for a time to accomplish salvation. It says, And this fullness does not only lodge in him for a time, but resideth and abideth in him. This is beautiful right here. He says, It is not in him... As the divine glory was a while in the tabernacle of Moses, meaning this fullness that dwells in Christ is not like the fullness that dwelled in the tabernacle that came and went. And the temple of Solomon, same thing there, but dwells constantly in him, not as a private person, <laughs> but a universal principle. As head of the body, as well as reconciler, to fill up the emptiness of man with the abundant grace that perpetually resideth in him. That this fullness of God, certainly we can hardly fathom in this one, this God and man in two persons, that this fullness dwells in him, not for a time just in his life, but even now, that this fullness dwells in the person of Christ. And when he took it on, he was transcending the divine glory that was for a time in the tabernacle and in the temple of Solomon. And it remains in him as the head of the body. And as uh, Mr. Tom began to kind of jog our memories thinking about uh, certain errors related to the headship of Christ over uh, his church... Um, this is why some of the reformers, I think, were so uh, passionate about not sharing that title with any man. That you can't say that a, a mere man is the head of the body because of what it means for Christ to be the head of the body and that that title is attributed to him. For he is the one alone whom these things can be said of. And it really explains the glory of this salvation and how Paul can move into speaking of the blood of his cross. It, it pleased the Father that this should be said of Christ, that all this fullness should dwell in him. 
the one who has all these titles, going back to verse 15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, etc., etc., it pleased the Father that in Him. And you could also think about it that because these things were true of Christ and displayed in Him, that the Father is displaying to you what pleases Him. In that His Son pleases Him. And how He shows the pleasure of the Father. But to show how the atonement, the work of his cross, plays into this as well. He goes on to that. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Right? When, when you consider who Christ really is, and when you meditate for just a moment of what Paul says about him in these passages... Seeing that he has blood as a man, how could his blood not do this? Right? How could his blood not do this? Since he is all that the Holy Ghost says he is through St. Paul. Because he is the beginning of all, it is only just and right that he is the reconciler of all. And that's a concept that's important to see in this text as well. Because remember, he's before all things. He made all things. All things are upheld in him. So therefore, if redemption is going to be found in anyone, it's going to be found in the one who made everything. Right? So he not only made it all, but he redeems it all. Everything that is redeemed is redeemed by Christ because he has this power. Yes, um, that is something that uh, Calvin goes into. I'm sure others do as well. But when you explain this phrase, having made peace through the blood of his cross, right? Well, what peace is he talking about? Well, he's talking about how everything in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, that was made by him was actually at war with him because of sin and other various reasons that are attached to that. So when he says that he's made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile, notice he doesn't just say to reconcile things in the earth to him. All things that he's been talking about, that Christ is head over uh, and all that, all of that receives or participates in this peace of God through the cross of Christ. And this is where... Uh, the concept of cosmology is so important that you have to be able to see uh, beyond simply the earth. Right? That's why angels are so important. Because the redemption of Christ on the cross was not just uh, an atoning sacrifice for men. It was that. But it had much more uh, um, that it accomplished, as it were. Christ reconciled all things, right, and if you don't think I'm right, just move to the end of verse 20. He says it again, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Right? And he doesn't mean the saints who had already gone on to be with the Lord at this point following Christ's resurrection. But he th means things in the heavenly places, in the heavens, as it were. So let's move through this last quote really quickly and then we'll be done. This is uh, from Beale. He says, just as Christ created all things in the first cosmos, 
the old creation. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 17 gets into that. So his recreation, the new creation that we live in, and reconciling work must also include every single thing of the new creation. The hostile forces, evil angelic beings, have been decisively defeated at the cross and resurrection. So chapter 2, verse 15, which says, I'll read that real quickly and then we'll resume the quote, that Christ has spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And he's talking about the work of his cross there. Resume the quote. Though they continue to exist, both angelic and human enemies, meaning the redemption that Christ accomplished is not just automatically fully applied in every single instance that it will be. So though these enemies continue to exist in both earth and heaven, they cannot stop the culmination of the pacification process. The fact that God's wrath has been satisfied, that the cross has made peace. These enemies cannot stop the culmination, meaning God's outworking of the peace that Christ's cross has purchased. Thus, Colossians 1.20 is a parallel to Ephesians 1.10. He gives his own translation there of that. The summing or heading up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. There in Ephesians 1, Christ is portrayed as overseeing a household management of the cosmos, putting into order the disordered creation. Christ's reordering of the chaotic creation includes bringing humanity into a peaceful relationship with itself and with God, partly as a result of defeating the rulers and authorities. And that's that, that angelic term again. And he, he gives you a Greek word there. Um, oikonomia. What does that sound like? Economy. Economy. That's where the word comes from, that. And it's a household word. And it's a word that's very often used in the Greek New Testament and much more often in writings outside the New Testament that talked about the ordering of a home. Right. Home economics. Thank you. Right? Almost like things were better when they were said that way. But they got it from somewhere. And it's from the Bible. That Christ is, let's call it, administering home economics over God's new creation. That word is used in Ephesians 1. Um, and Yeah, anyway, that'll open your mind to read some things differently. But any quick questions or comments? All right, I'm not going to give you a chance to think about it anymore because I need to go. Let's pray.